And welcome back. Our first question is, a person is seen as guilty but is not. He is asked if Jesus could forgive. The answer is yes. But the person feels that to answer yes is admitting guilt. So how could I answer without appearing to admit that I'm guilty? This is the question. Somebody said, so a person is, has, has been seen by others as being guilty, but they're actually not guilty of anything. And then, because others see him as guilty, Dean, don't put these questions up, please. I do not want the questions on the screen. Thank you. It's a distraction. And I edit the questions. I don't read everything people ask, and it'll distract people. Okay? Um, so, so the person is seen as guilty, but they haven't done anything wrong. And so people who see them in guilty ask them, can, can the Lord for, could, could the Lord forgive you? And, and he says, the answer is yes, but if I answer yes, then that would be kind of like admitting that, that, that what they think of me is right. So what's the better answer to give? And the answer, of course, is a trap question. Could the Lord forgive you? Of course. When you haven't done anything wrong? <laughs> what's there to forgive? Well, okay, so, so it's a trap question. It's a classic lawyer question. This would be like asking this. Could Jesus heal Adam of his perfect health in Eden? Could Jesus heal Adam from his perfect health in Eden? The answer to that question, if you answer it as a yes or no, is no. Jesus could not heal him of his perfect health. But the idea of could Jesus sets the tone of, are you going to restrict Jesus? No, Jesus can do anything. So answer yes, which then meant, well, then why did God not make him with perfect health? It's a trap question. So if you have to answer it, you say, well, no. And if they asked me, I would have simply said, could Jesus forgive you? No, he couldn't because there's nothing to forgive. We only forgive wrongs. Jesus does not forgive righteousness. And so it's a trap question. Let's see you deal with that. Can you explain Numbers 11.1 1 from the design perspective? Uh, and this is um, from the New King James Version. They quote it. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord. His anger was aroused, so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. First thing I recommend for those who have questions like this Always read it from a variety of versions. Don't stick with one version. Go read it in several other translations. If you know the Hebrew, then read the Hebrew. Most of us don't know the Hebrew, so we read a variety of, of reasonable translations. And if you read, so that was the New King James, and then and the New King James, uh, it said, and the, uh, the, the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. This is from the NIV. Then the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Not some in the outskirts of the camp, but some of the outskirts of the camp. And that preposition, in or of, it's the same word. It can be legitimately chosen. The translators have to choose. Is God burning some of the people in the camp or is God burning some of the camp? That's a choice the translators make in that particular text. So first rule when you get difficult texts like this, read from a variety of translations. 
Second rule, understand the context. Do a little study. As the camp was laid out, who's in the outskirts? The mixed multitude, not the 12 tribes. And the mixed multitude are those ones who have the, what, I mean, remember, the 12 tribes are still struggling with their primitive post-slavery understanding and childlike ways of doing things. But the mixed multitude would even be worse. They would still have some, maybe some loyalties to their pagan deities and so forth and so on. And so God burns among them and burns up some of their stuff. Perhaps he's burning up their idols. Again, like he did in Egypt. We don't, we're not told. But the rebellion settled down. So, it's in, so it seems perfectly reasonable that God would act this way. Next. Um, will you please shed some, shed some light on 1 Samuel 2.25? So here's another text for me. It says that the wicked sons of Eli did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. This wording could make it sound like the reason they did not, ask to, did not listen to Eli was because God prevented them from doing so in order to kill them, which would seem to be a violation of free will. I know there must be a better explanation for this, but verses like this trip me up when I read it. Thank you. So again, read a variety of different translations. Then read widely through Scripture then understand the actual context, then ask, after God said this in this text, one of the worst things people do to get bad theology, here a a text, there a text. Everywhere a text, text. (laughs) Okay? I mean, we just take and pluck. So this text is taken, and we're going to build a theology on this text. What does it mean that he said this without actually saying, after he said it, what happened? Does anybody remember the story? These are Eli's sons. Did Eli's sons die? Yes. yes. How did they die? They went to war. And who killed them? Philistines. The Philistines killed them. Immediately, if the Philistines killed them, did God kill them? No. Did God use power to kill them? No. So then the concern of this, this writer should already be mitigated someone by the, by the objective facts of what, how they actually died. And they went to war against the advice of counsel. I can't tell you how many people don't do this in Scripture. They will read, my anger is burning hot and furious with you. And then King Saul falls on his sword and commits suicide. And it says in one place that God put him to death for his, his, his sin. But we have a clear description that Saul fell on his own sword after his armor bearers would not run him through at, at his request. Were angels forcing him down? He's going, please, I want to live, I want to live, please don't do it. And angels are for no. So there's this idea in Scripture. They were killed by the Philistines, not by God. How did God decide to kill them? And so if you read in different versions, some versions will say, and let me read a couple different versions. Here's, here's out of the New English translation. If a man sins against man, one may appeal to God and... Uh, one may appeal to God on his behalf. But if man sins against the Lord, who then will intercede for him? But Eli's sons would not listen to their father, for the Lord had decided to kill them. And then you say, what happened? What happened is they went out to war. 
and God's wrath burned against them. What does God's wrath define in Scripture? He let them go. So when they went to war, did they have God's protection? And why did God's wrath burn against them? Because they were misrepresenting him. Uh, Yes, they were misrepresenting him, but they were in continued rebellion. They were basically saying, I'm going to do it my way. I don't want to be in harmony with you. I want to be free of you. And because of their rebellion, God said, I will set you free. You've chosen this. I set you free to have it, and I will withdraw my protective hand and let you experience life and what short time you have left free of my interventions. And they got killed by the Philistines. This is what happened. This is how God works. This is what the Bible teaches about God's wrath over and over again. God set them free, let them go. And that's how they died. Sometimes, on some of the versions, if you, and, and so you do all that, think through, and then you can also read Bible commentaries. And this is from the, the SDA Bible commentary on this passage. Literally, quote, this is, this is a literal translation into the English, it pleased the Lord to cause them to die, unquote. And they go on to say, they had rejected God's protection, control, chosen their own selfish ways, and deliberately forsaken the counsel of heaven. In turning away from the angel of the Lord, they sealed their own doom. It was the Philistines who killed them, yet God permitted their deaths because of their refusal to follow him. Quoting great controversy, quote, God does not stand toward the sinner as an execution of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to reap that which they have sown, unquote, from great controversy, page 36. So this pleased the, it pleased the Lord to cause them to die. How did he cause it? By not intervening and stopping what their choices were leading them to experience. That's how he caused it. And why did it please him? Not in the sense of pleasure or joy. If you've ever seen a court sh- courtroom program on TV and maybe a very antagonistic attorney that the judge is not real pleased with, says, if it pleases the court, may I approach the bench? And even though the, 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 the court is not happy, the court says, come on forward. This please is simply permission. That's all it means. The, it, it pleased the Lord. In other words, the Lord gave permission for them to go free of him. That's all it means. It's not what he wanted. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes. Why does it seem that the Seventh-day Adventist church is fading away from Ellen White? Our pastor never brings references up any, uh, from any of her writings. When asked about Mrs. White, it seems that uh, she, it, it, when asked about Mrs. White, it seems that she feels, oh, she feels, okay, uh, her writings are outdated. Your thoughts. Did the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago have the inspired writings of the Old Testament, you know, the Torah, the scriptures, inspired by God? Were they teaching primarily from those inspired writings, or were they teaching from the other traditions? And, and what were those other, other books called that they were teaching from? The Talmud. The Talmud, and then the Mishnah. They were teaching from these other writings. They're traditions of men that Jesus called them on over and over again. Like, um, uh, instead of honoring their mother and father, they would say Korban, from their traditions of men. And so they were setting aside the inspired record for the traditions of the church. This is a, this is a 
historical process that happens over and over because we're in a war between God's kingdom of truth and love and Satan's kingdom of lies and selfishness. And throughout all human history, you will have these two. And the Bible says in Scripture that the wheat and the tares grow up together until the harvest. And in God's church, you will have wheat and you will have tares in the church just like in the Sanhedrin, we had those who killed Christ and we had Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. We had wheat and we had tares in the Sanhedrin and we have wheat and we have tares in the church. And you will have people diminishing the value of the inspired record that is to prepare us uh, for various other traditions. And you're going to see more and more of that, in my view. Does anybody disagree with that? Could, would you please give some insight on understanding Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, which says that God will harden the hearts of people and so forth and so on. So if um, instead of explaining that one here today for the person who emailed that in, go to our website in the little search box with the little hourglass up there, type in God's Judgment Part 1, and you will find it has a, a, a longer title. But if you just type in God's Judgment Part 1, it says, Did God Harden Pharaoh's Heart? You can probably type that in and find it too. And that whole blog explains it. And if you want another one, you can type in, God is in control of what? And both of those blogs go into great detail explaining the answer to this question of how God hardens hearts, the method he he makes. In short, God reveals truth that people can comprehend, and then people are left free to decide what they do with the truth. And what happens if you have truth that you're convicted of that you reject? What happens to your heart? And would your heart get as hard if you don't reject the truth? So God is the source of truth, and that's how he keeps presenting it. And people then decide to accept or reject it. If they accept, their heart softened and transformed. If they reject it, hardens. That's the simple answer, but it goes into greater detail. And then this one, in your book, uh, The God-Shaped Brain, you speak about current understanding of Christ achieved through his atonement, that Christ uh, defeated the infection of sin in his own humanity, the two antagonistic principles that followed out in his mind. And this person goes on with a a series of of postings here to to be concerned about how I described how Jesus experienced this. And he said, quotes from Ellen White, Be careful, exceedingly careful, as to how you dwell upon the human nature of Christ. Do not set him up. Um, before the people is a man with the propensities of sin. He is the second Adam. The first Adam was created pure, sinless being without taint of sin upon him. He was the image of God. So you're exactly right, and I'm always very careful to never set him up with those propensities. I described that he had the capacity to experience temptation in every way like we are, yet without sin, as the scripture. And the key description that I give in this is to consider how his humanity came into being. Adam's humanity was formed out of the dirt, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he was formed a sinless human being. Eve's humanity was taken from the side of a sinless being, another sinless human being. You and I came into this world from a sinful mother and a sinful father, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. Jesus' humanity, there's three ways I just gave you, right? Three different ways that human beings have come into being. Jesus' humanity, did it come in any one of those three ways? Did it come from dirt, breathing? Did it come from the side of a sinless being? Did it come from two sinful parents? No. Jesus is a unique human being whose mother, Galatians 5, uh, 4, 4, says he was born uh, um, under law, the law of sin and death, through his mother. He partook of our humanity. But his father was the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus Christ, he was, had a humanity that could be tempted in all points just like we are, yet he had an, an internal nature that could resist those temptations that we don't have because of his spirit. Just like Adam did. 
just like Adam did. But unlike Adam, he was tempted far beyond Adam because he got tired, he got fatigued, his, his body was weaker, and he also experienced the, the temptations of the fallen humanity that Adam did not have. And we see those temptations in Gethsemane when Jesus experienced powerful human emotions where he agonized in human emotions that Adam never had. But he had no propensity towards them. He had no desire for them, but they tempted him. And you can get that also from putting the text together. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Is that true? And it says in James 1, no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil. That right there tells you his divine nature was not being tempted. It was his human nature being tempted. God cannot be tempted by evil. Each one of us are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. It's not just external temptation like the devil did in in the wilderness. We are tempted by desires. Was he tempted in every way just like we are? Yes or no? And are we tempted by our own desires in addition to external temptation? And then do we see in Gethsemane that he had human emotions or desires to avoid the cross? If it be possible, let this pass from me. And so that's, but, but within him, he had no propensities towards that. And he was able to resist and overcome exercising human abilities that we could never do. And then the last question, uh, at least uh, maybe I should refresh because maybe there's more questions that have come in. I don't know. But the, the last question I have... Oh, where are we? Yeah, it looks like some more have come in. Let me see. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, here we are. Uh, what is this? 1 Corinthians eleven five to 15. What is the background and why did Paul write about women covering themselves and why is it not um, the current Christian custom? I'm just giving the short answer. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we're really late on time. The short answer has to do with the culture and the context. It's all about um, Christians presenting themselves under propriety and um, modesty of, of uh, the Christian principles. And you understand what those Christian principles are. In that culture, you could go worship at the pagan fertility cults, temples. And if you went to the pagan fertility cult temple, you would meet a cult prostitute, and the cult prostitute would be identified by her shaved head. So you would know. Paul is saying a woman's glory is her hair. Okay, that's one aspect of it. So if you're, uh, one aspect is you don't shave your head or cut your hair short if you're a woman because you, in keeping your hair long in that culture, you, dis, you, you, you declared your virtue. Secondly, a woman in that culture would wear a veil over her hair, very much like you see Middle Eastern women doing still today, which showed that she had a veil over her hair, sometimes a veil in their face, and it was designed, again, show propriety. To take that off would mean that she was stepping free from her husband and she was available in lewd ways. And so he is saying that the Christian woman does not present that in Christ women are lewd and loose, that they are, they are virtuous and, and, and have um, propriety. And that's all that was about. As culture changes and we demonstrate that in other ways, then, then the Christian women should still continue to do that in the ways that are appropriate for the culture. Um. And it says, just curious, have you been watching The Chosen, noticed anything off about it? I've watched a few of the episodes, and uh, I thought they were very nicely produced. I didn't, wasn't a big fan of the process myself. I've probably seen three or four of the episodes, but I haven't watched in detail to really get deeply into it. So, How would you expand, uh, interpret God's appearance or intention of slaying 
in the accounts of Balaam in Numbers 22, uh, in circumcising Moses' kids, etc., etc., etc. This is all under the context that I've explained before. Um, God is working in Old Testament times to keep open avenue for Messiah. Satan is working to close and disrupt that avenue. All those uh, examples, if God ever does act in Old Testament times, like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, firstborn of Egypt, always first death experiences. None of them are punishments for sin experiences. And so these are the, the, the conflicts going back and forth where God is therapeutically acting to excise various um, pathological states like Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities around to keep open avenue for Messiah to come. Everything of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. Everything is about that. And that's why it keeps focusing down on where it's focusing. So you should answer these questions in light of how does this help advance the Messiah and what is Satan trying to do to derail the Messiah? And you understand that Balaam was part of a a derailing and uh, effort. When he couldn't curse them, he told them how to do it. Bring in the foreign women and corrupt them from within. So this question has no answer uh, that we have any evidence for. How long after the first Sabbath did Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We have no inspired evidence. Um, It's all speculative. Um, My personal speculation is less than nine months. (laughs) Because he told them, be fruitful and multiply in a world before sin. And there were no kids before they did this, so it had to be less than nine months. But but who knows? That's, That's my particular view. And I don't think there was a fertility problem with Eve, so, like Sarah. <laughs> says, good morning, who is the red dragon and the one-third of the stars of, of Revelation 12? Um, so the, uh, the Bible itself explains Revelation 12, 7, that the dragon um, was wroth with the uh, woman, or, or, or excuse me, that uh, Michael's angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon's angels fought back, that ancient serpent called the devil. Okay, so that tells you right in the text that the dragon is, is Satan, the devil. If Catholicism had stated they had power over the Sabbath and made it a law to keep the Sabbath on the seventh day, that still would have made them advance Satan's methods, correct? So if they would have stated they had power over the law of respiration and they command everyone to breathe, would that then make, make them advancing Satan's kingdom because they're claiming to have power of respiration? No, 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 this is not true. You just ignore it. It's a delusional claim and it has no foundation. To the degree they could get people to believe that the Sabbath is an arbitrary command, like the Jews, perhaps, who may put all these legal regulations on the Sabbath and it was the right day, but they, they, they changed it from, a, from an evidence of, of design law and the freedom we have to a, a rule to enslave people. Jesus said that you search the world to find a convert, and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell because you're enslaving them in this legal system. So it would, it would, uh, you, you can still promote the Bible Sabbath and promote Satan's kingdom in a legal way. That's true. Would you say the father of the prodigal son was an example of Bible wrath? Uh, I, I think you could, you could make the argument when he let him go um, and also how he received him back. Um, I mean, you could make the argument and let him go and not, not sending support, but he also had no attitude of negativity. So I think you could, you could make an argument of that. Yeah. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and for your grace and for the truths you revealed and the way you run your kingdom. We ask again for your spirit to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, and let us be settled both intellectually and spiritually. We can carry your kingdom into this world. In your holy name, amen.